Good afternoon and welcome to Everyday Law. I am your host, Bob Clark. As always, any of the viewpoints that are offered on this show are not those of the faculty, staff, or students of Howard County Community College. And any legal discussions on this show are not intended to provide legal advice. If you require legal services, it's important that you consult an attorney and acquaint them with all of the facts of your individual legal situation so you can get the best advice possible. On our show today, we have the privilege of having a member of the Intermediate Appellate Court in Maryland, the so-called Court of Special Appeals, Judge Dan Friedman. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Judge Friedman is, as we say in my household, a double terp, having graduated from the University of Maryland as an undergraduate and the law school, as my wife has done as well, and has had a distinguished career and had the privilege of working in the early days with two Venerable judges, could you tell us a little bit about your experience clerking for those judges and how it has informed your career? Oh, absolutely. Being a law clerk is, uh, I think, one of the great things you can do to kick off your legal career. I clerked first for a, a judge on the circuit court for Baltimore City, which is the state trial court judge, John Carroll Burns. And clerking for a trial judge sometimes is more like being a major d. Uh, at a at a fancy restaurant rather than being a legal scholar. But I helped line up the cases for the judge, took care of problems for him, and every once in a while wrote opinions with him. But mostly I watched a lot of trial work in the circuit court for Baltimore City, which was great and very helpful for me as a litigator in both public and private practice. After clerking for Judge Burns for a year, I also had the opportunity to clerk for an appellate judge, Judge Robert L. Karwacki of the Court of Appeals of Maryland, and I served as his law clerk for a year, helping him write opinions. And since I became an appellate judge, that has been just a wealth of thinking back on how Judge Karwacki ran his chambers has helped me think about how I want to run mine. So what is it that you do day-to-day as a judge on the Court of Special Appeals? I read, I write, and I think. Uh, every once in a while, I talk on the phone. My kids, uh, when they were younger, did not think that this was the most interesting uh, take-your-kids-to-work day activity, watching me sit at the desk and read and write and think. But that's really what the job is. We receive the records from trials in the circuit court, and our job is to see if the trial court made errors that require reversal and sending it back for a new trial or or whatever result, or if trial was conducted fairly, we affirm the decision. So it's a lot of reading the transcript of that former trial, right, uh, reading the briefs in which the attorneys argue about whether there were mistakes, and then we write our answers. Do you have a feel for how often the trial courts are reversed in the Court of Special Appeals? I don't have a statistical number. We are a, a court of appeal by right. Yes. And so folks often say, I want to appeal even when they don't have, and take their appeal, as is their right, even when they don't have much of an legal error to complain about. I would guess that we affirm 
more than 80% of the time, but that's just a guess. So just so we distinguish for our listeners, a appeal as of right is sort of distinguished from the public typically hears about petitioning the Supreme Court or in, in, in our state petitioning the Court of Appeals with, as a Latin thing, but a writ of certiorari. In other words, sort of a special, please, 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 my case is important, is significant, and you should hear it. Correct. The courts at the top of the apex get to pick the cases that they want to hear. Uh, courts in the middle get appeals as of right, and anybody who pays the pays the fine and files the notice can have their appeal heard in the Court of Special Appeals. Gotcha. So do you have occasions where the oral argument in the case sways you from your views before the oral argument? Absolutely. I think that the best work of of lawyering is done in the briefs, and great briefs will help me come to a pretty good idea of what I want to do in a case in advance. But there are a lot of briefs that are not quite as good, and I won't necessarily understand all the nuance of the issue in advance of the oral arguments, and sometimes folks who write not necessarily the best brief will be able to explain their case better orally. And it is not infrequent that oral argument will expose a nuance that I missed in the brief and can change my mind. The other thing that changes my mind is after we hear from the advocates, we go in the back, the three judges who make up the panel, and talk about the case. And I'm always amazed by my colleagues who have such varied and interesting backgrounds and can see a case very differently than the way I see it. And my views on the case are often informed by those of my colleagues. Do you find that, the and, and this is something that the students here probably don't know, but when you do an appeal, you file a brief, which in essence is the arguments in favor of your position, and you file the record, which is all of the information that the court that is being appealed from relied on. And each side kind of gets a crack at things, and then the appellant, the people who are aggrieved by the lower court's decision, gets to file a reply brief. Typically, they roll in and they do these arguments, and having been before the court quite a number of times, you sometimes feel like you're being besieged from the outset by the judges with questions that are tricky to answer. And I just wondered how often you find the questions asked by the judges tease out nuances or sides of the case that you had not considered before. Well, I think people think of the questioning as sort of a performance art. And in my experience, it's almost never that. Okay, It is three people who are interested in your case, who have been thinking about it and want to make sure that they understand the nuances and the implications of your argument. And there are members of my bench who are very active questioners. There are others who are less active. I find I go back and forth. Some days I don't ask a whole lot of questions. Other days i in there slugging away. But it's about trying to make sure I understand the case and have explored all the all the nuance in it. So in my view, it's almost never a performance art or about giving the lawyers a hard time. It's about exploring the nuances and implications of the case. 
So I would typically rather you immediately embrace my position on the case, ask me no questions, <laughs> say it's not necessary, Mr. Clark. You can sit down and then pummel my opponent. Well, I think everybody dreams of those, <laughs> but those arguments. But the best advocates spend their time thinking about not the easy questions that they're hoping to hit home runs off of, but the hard questions that if they can just foul that one off, they could stay at the plate for another go. Given the success of the Washington Nationals, I like you using that little uh, description. <laughs> oh, you got the wrong guy. I understand. I understand. I have many Orioles. Hard... Yes. <laughs> yes, many of my Lodge close friends are. And I'm not mocking them at all right now, so let me be clear about that. I support the Orioles, too. You know, No baseball in Washington for many, many years, so I raised two children on the Orioles, and they now think I'm a heretic. <laughs> So did you have occasion to do oral argument when you were a practicing attorney? Absolutely. And what did you find was most challenging about doing that? I'll tell you this. When you are in law school or undergraduate programs that simulate oral argument, mock trials, moot courts, there's a lot of criticism about standing up straighter, don't talk with your hands, don't say um and ah, things about trying to get the advocate to be more polished. And what I learned principally as Judge Carwacki's law clerk and watching a year's worth of argument is that polish didn't change the outcome in a single case. Interesting. And what changes the outcome in cases is knowing your case, knowing the law and the facts, answering questions truthfully, thinking about the implications of them, and helping the court come to see that vindicating your client's result is in the best interest of uh, the development of the law. And what I found was every second I wasted on polishing making my voice sound different or my manner more formal and less folksy or whatever you call it <laughs> was wasted time because the court doesn't care whether I say um or ah a lot. So finding my voice was the most important thing I learned as an oral advocate, getting those new court voices out of my head and talking to the judges. So you're suggesting people need to find their particular style or best mechanism for communicating and utilize that and not fear that it isn't Perry Mason or something. A hundred percent. I think you've got to find your own voice. And let me say this affirmatively. I think sometimes the voices were taught or coached to sound like, sound like people who have, like groups who have successfully been at the bar for a long time, uh, and we don't appreciate the new voices, the voices from our minority community, from women, and so we're, we, we try and make advocates sound like other people, and that's doing nobody any favors. I'm happy to hear advocates in their own voice, who are women and who are minorities or from different communities, from different places, and find your voice. Don't try and sound like 
Perry Mason. That's a good example. It does date us a little, however. <laughs> it is. I am. I'm certain that law that uh, college students and law students today do not know who Perry Mason was. Well, I've tried to find a modern equivalency, and and they're just you know there's so many sources of media in the modern age that. One of the guests we've had on a couple of times is a friend of mine from law school who was the protagonist of uh, the Netflix series Making a Murderer. And so when I use Jerry Buting, there's a certain percentage of the population that immediately goes, oh, I know who that is. I know what they mean kind of thing. But uh, it doesn't seem like there's a modern sort of lawyer equivalency. No, I don't think there is. So I wanted to chat with you a little bit. I just sort of I regularly read opinions that emanate from the appellate courts. There's a newspaper that everybody in the legal community reads called The Daily Record, and they have opinions that come out, and so I kind of am mindful of about it. And I you know, looked at a couple opinions that you were involved in, and I think they're instructive for a couple of reasons. One is that one is a dissent, and I think there's a tendency on the part of people to think that judges make decisions but they kind of make sometimes positive decisions and sometimes negative decisions. And I wondered if you could talk about what a dissent is, how you arrive at it, and when you feel it is necessary. I write dissents. We are assigned to three judge panels, and most of the time, uh, the three of us agree on how the case ought to come out. I'd say... In the, in the 80 or 90% range, we agree, and there will only be the majority opinion which speaks for all three judges. Okay. On occasions when there are disagreements, I will write either a concurrence or a dissent. A concurrence means I agree with the outcome, but there's some reason I can't join the majority opinion. Okay. Um, or I write a dissent where I say I disagree with the, with the majority opinion. I write more separate opinions, concurrences and dissents, probably than any of my colleagues. I do it a fair bit. One, because I sometimes see things differently than they do. Um, a second reason that I write dissents is my view. There's only one intermediate appellate court and we so we in other systems there may be multiple appellate courts uh, intermediate appellate courts <coughs> pardon me so you'll see a circuit split where one circuit when one intermediate court will see a case differently than uh, a, a second intermediate appellate court we don't have the opportunity for that in Maryland because there's only one court of special appeals. So the the court of appeals, our state Supreme Court, might not understand or might not get presented to it different ways of viewing a problem. So I think it's especially important in in the Maryland system um, that we present when we see differences that we present those for the court of appeals to study. But you don't seem to acknowledge the dangers of mulch. <laughs> so the mulch case is uh, is an insurance case between the occupants of one building and their next door neighbor. Um, the uh, steam fitters union owned one property, 
and apparently guys from the union would hang out uh, out front while waiting for the union hall to open up, smoke cigarettes, and sometimes throw the cigarette butts in the mulch. On one occasion, according to the parties, the mulch caught fire and that fire spread to the neighbor property who was storing flammable chemicals and the flammable chemicals erupted and caused fire damage. Um, My two colleagues, the, the, the case went to a jury in Prince George's County and the, the trial judge who was a retired judge of my court, um, found that it was appropriate to send the question of liability uh, by the Steamfitters Union to the jury. Two of my colleagues, when it got to us on appeal, agreed with that decision. I thought it was inappropriate, and the evidence that there was an old mulch pile and that people in the past had smoked on it was insufficient to establish tort liability. Uh, on the part of the union. Um, But, you know, so I wrote a dissent explaining why I was unconvinced of that. Um, And the Court of Appeals took certiorari, and I, as I understand it, recently heard oral arguments. So I don't know what the answer is going to be. I had heard that as well. It's kind of interesting to me because it I happened to have an office in Laurel, and briefly, our neighbor, who was a physician, decided he was going to rent his place out to what proved to be a pill mill. And I don't know that he knew that, but relatively quickly, there were 9,000 people sitting in front of our office throwing cigarette butts into our mulch. And one day, in fact, it did catch fire, but it took a lot of cigarette butts. And uh, we, we, we did not sue the neighbor for anything associated with that. But it just it kind of when I read this opinion, it reminded me of our circumstances. And uh, now the one the one thing I would disagree on you is with is that the number of butts caused the fire. It oh, was I, only I, one I don't think that's true that either. Yeah. Oh, no, I concur. <laughs> I concur. Infinite butts don't necessarily cause a fire. One just happened to. Um, I think th- that was the uh, disagreement between uh, between me and and my colleagues, um, who, by the way, are two outstanding judges who I think of as mentors in the area of in lots of areas, but particularly including tort law. Judge uh, Jim Eiler and uh, Judge Stuart Berger. There's so no question about that it. We dis- that we disagree is uh, is not unusual, but that doesn't diminish my Respect admiration for, sure. for both of them. Now, was that something where you hear the arguments and you immediately go back and discuss the case and there's an immediate disagreement, or how did that come about? Uh, that was one where all of us, I don't want to give away secrets. Sure. Oh, yeah, you uh, need sometimes. It. Sometimes everybody comes back and is very certain. That was, as I recall it, a situation where everybody wanted to go back and study the record a little bit more closely. Uh, there were facts that came out at oral argument that 
surprised us and may have changed things a little bit. Now, that's not supposed to happen, is it? Well, a a nuance might have uh, might have occurred. It happens from time to time that we that something something isn't quite the way we had thought it was. And everybody wanted to go back and think about it. Uh, Judge Eiler was responsible for drafting the opinion. And and I think all of us were not sure how it was going to come out. He came out the way he proposed to come out. Judge Berger agreed with that, and uh, and I saw it a little bit differently. So I so I wrote separately. So do you find from time to time that you okay? I, maybe I'm jumping the procedure a little bit, but it sounded to me like you said earlier that you kind of hear the oral arguments, and relatively quickly, you and the other members of the panel have at least some level of discussion about what your what your inclinations are. Is that accurate? The general rule is we have. We hear four, five, six cases on a day. As soon as the day's cases end, we go in the back and vote on how we expect the cases to come out. Okay. So there is generally, by the end of that day, we know how how most of those cases are coming out. But from time to time, there will be one that will have surprised us, and we want to think about a little bit more. This was one of those. Do you find that you go back sometimes and it's, you know, two to one, one way, and then gradually across further consideration, the, the split changes or goes to, you know, two to one the other way or three to nothing the other way? It can happen. Um, it doesn't happen all that often, although, you know, from time to time you'll read, you'll think you're going to dissent and you will get the majority opinion and find yourself persuaded by it. So I wanted to touch on another opinion briefly also. Uh, it's a case called, or at least it was entitled at the Court of Special Appeals, Lowry versus Wong. And I, I focus on it because, A, it was sort of an interesting case, and B, it looked as though you were required to look at what is for Maryland ancient history in arriving at your decision in the case. Could you give us a brief uh, overview of that case and, and what I'm talking about in that regard? Absolutely. The, the parties were fighting over the meaning of a statute that was adopted uh, in the early 1800s um, about, and this is a statute that gave essentially a statute of limitations uh, for a creditor's claim against a debtor while the debtor was in the process of undergoing uh, insolvency proceedings under then-existing state law. Okay, let me let me stop you for one second, and I'm going to tra- try and translate that into English a little bit. That a statute of limitations for our listeners is a limitation on how long you have to sue over a particular claim. Am I correct in that? Correct. Okay. And insolvency is, for modern purposes, the early forerunner of bankruptcy. Am I correct about that? Okay. So it was really an argument about how long someone had to sue over something that was the early 19th century version of bankruptcy. And the Court of Appeals has told us that we're supposed to read this statute, which was written for a state precursor to bankruptcy, as if it meant what happens today, 200-some-odd years later, in 
modern bankruptcy. Oh, that sounds like a breeze. <laughs> and in this case, the question was whether when the legislature wrote the word dismissal, it meant only dismissal or it meant other ways in which a case might end, including particularly a very rare thing that happens in less than, uh, I think it was 2% of bankruptcies, which is a punishment called a denial of discharge. So Ms. Wong, in that case, had received a denial of discharge, and the question was, was that the modern equivalent of dismissal or not. Gotcha. Um, and we could not, we went back, we tried all the things, all the tricks we know to figure out what the legislature meant in 1815. And I don't, I think the answer is we cannot know conclusively what that meant. Um, Did you consider so, a seance? <laughs> That's uh, that's essentially what we what we do is we read everything we can, try and figure out what they were thinking. But in the end, it's not always a fruitful exercise. Um, and my opinion for the court, which was a published opinion of the Court of Special Appeals, I've read it, um, predicts that what it meant was that a denial of discharge should be treated the same as a dismissal. Gotcha. That, too, has been granted certiorari. The Court of Appeals is considering it, and by August of next year, we'll know whether a denial of discharge really is a dis the same thing as a dismissal or not. Which will probably have very little utility, but nonetheless is an interesting point. Uh Hopefully, as I say, <laughs> less than 2% of the cases does this end in, uh, and most of the creditors would have renewed their judgment um, so that it would avoid the statute of limitations. So I think it would be a very rare case, but it's one that these people need to have resolved, so that's why we're here. So I aspired to talk to you about the Maryland Constitution because it's one of my favorite things. And we had Judge Michelle Houghton on a few weeks ago from the Court of Appeals, and she loves it too. Um, but I'm afraid that we're going to run out of time shortly. So I did want to ask you just very briefly because we have a minute. When did you know you wanted to be a lawyer? Why did you know you wanted to be a lawyer? And when did you know you wanted to be a judge? Ah, so... I think I have the non-traditional response. I was working at Baltimore City Hall, and I was the legislative director to the president of the city council. And the president had decided that she was going to run for mayor against then-mayor uh, Kurt Smoke. And I was, I was supportive of my boss, but I was not optimistic that she would win. <laughs> and... I decided to look around and see who got to keep their jobs once if if there was a uh, if there was a turnover if uh, if they if an election was lost and I thought you know who gets to keep their jobs is the lawyers very practical and I decided then 
to go to law school. And my plan was always to go back into government um, and work for government. Um, and that was always my aspiration. I didn't get to do it as a lawyer right away, but I did get to be a lawyer first for Baltimore City, working in the city solicitor's office, and later for the state of Maryland, working in the office of the attorney general as counsel to the General Assembly. So um, that was always my dream was working in government, and I got to do it as a lawyer for a long while, which was a great treat. And now you're doing it as a judge. Well, I I, I have to treat the government fair as fairly as one of the litigants, so I'm not on their side. But at the end of the day, uh, I hope that we're providing justice for the people of the of the state of Maryland. Well, that seems like a worthy end of this show. I'd like to thank Judge Dan Friedman of the Court of Special Appeals for appearing on Everyday Law. Oh, it's been my great pleasure. And I aspire to have you back again so we can gab about the Maryland Constitution. There are few enough opportunities. I'm always happy to talk about the Maryland Constitution, and probably you'll be relieving my children because they won't have to hear me talking about the Maryland Constitution. Amen to that. Thank you very much. (laughs) This has been Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. Farewell. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.